The book of 1 Kings is over near the first part of the Old Testament, and our text today is from that book. It's not hard to find, and the chapter is chapter 19. I'd love, I hope that you'll turn in your Bible to the text. And I want to talk about what to do about depression. What to do about depression. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. And now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. He said, I'm going to give you about 24 hours, then I'm going to kill you. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough, I've had it. You ever said that? I've had it up to here. It is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and kill thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and now they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it, the gentle blowing, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? There's something very sad and tragic about this man of God lying on his face in the wilderness begging God to let him die. It is the picture of the dark night of despondency. It is the, it is the picture of a man in deep depression. 
and we can all identify with that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was perhaps one of the greatest preachers Baptists has ever produced. A pastor of the great Metropolitan Church in London. And his biographers say that he was almost a manic depressive. He would become so depressed that he couldn't preach, couldn't even function. And so he would come to America to get some relief. And he would stay for months in America until he could kind of get things back together and go back to London and preach in power. I'm told that Winston Churchill was given to dark moods of depression. The power of depression so engulfed him from time to time that he could hardly function in life. And Abraham Lincoln was a man of deep and foreboding moods and would spend days and weeks in the very depths of depression. We all have our good days and we all have our bad days, don't we? And it seems that the most sensitive people are the most susceptible to depression. If you can picture this morning a line running horizontally through your life, above that line is light, below that line is darkness. Above the line, we are in control of our emotions. Below the line, our emotions control us. You'll understand that just about everybody at some times lives below the line at the mercy of his moods. It would be interesting to notice or consider what this experience has been called over the years. John Bunyan calls depression, called depression the sloth of despond. John's gospel calls it the dark night of the soul. The army calls it battle fatigue. And the layman calls it nervous exhaustion. And the psalmist said, out of the depths I cried unto thee. It was down in the depths, down in the pit, down in the dumps where God found Elijah. Now depression is caused by many things, I assume, I imagine. Sometimes it's directly related to some physical problem or physical condition. It might be the tension in some ethical conflict. Sometimes it's caused by separation. It's referred to as separation anxiety. Sometimes it's just being around depressed people makes you depressed. The big question is not what causes depression, not why are we depressed. The big question is what can be done about it. Now when you open the Bible and you read about the great gospel of God, how it releases one from bondage, we talk about redemption and salvation through faith in Christ. The question comes to many of us, that's great, but does the, does the gospel, does the word of God, does God have any answers for my daily problems? Does he have any help for my burdens? Is there any solution to my depression? Can God help me get above that line of darkness where I live? The answer to that, of course, is a resounding yes. Because in the first place, God deals with a total man. The first thing God did to Elijah was to put him to sleep. He was exhausted. He was spent. If Elijah had lived in our day, we would say that Elijah was experiencing burnout. He was completely burned out. Think of the stress that was on this man as he stood alone on Carmel and encountered the prophets of Baal. 
And think of the strain physically upon this man as he ran for 30 miles ahead of the chariots of Ahab. First record in history of a 30-mile marathon. And if there has to be a world record that will never be broken, that must have been it. He strapped on his Nikes and he took off and he ran 30 miles ahead of the chariots of Ahab. And think of the intensity of his prayer as he agonized before God on Carmel. And there is nothing as exhausting and draining as a person on his face pouring out his heart in prayer. He was physically empty. He was drained. He was tired. He was exhausted. And so God put him to sleep and he woke him up and he fed him and he put him to sleep and he woke him up and he fed him again. Now sometime today, my wife's going to come to me in a very subtle way she's going to say, Have you ever, did you listen to your sermon today? I can predict she's going to say that. For what I'm about to say applies to me as much as it applies to anybody in this room. It just may be that the most religious thing you can do for God and His kingdom is to take some time to rest. We live in a work-worship world. And some of us have this kind of a, this um, unrealistic standard of high-level achievement. And we're kind of driven by this uh, neurotic compulsion to perform and to succeed and to accomplish the maximum. So that... Doing 12 or 15 hours is no longer the exception, but rather the rule. And enough is no longer enough for most of us. And most of us would rather have our family and our friends say to us, you're working too hard than to run the risk of, th for, uh, of facing somebody who thinks we're not diligent. In this work-worship world, if a guy doesn't have bags under his eyes and a peptic ulcer, he's not worth his salt. And that's just applicable, applicable across the board. Uh, Lee shared with me a book this week called uh, Losing Your Grip or Strengthening Your Grip on Leisure is one of the chapters by Chuck Swindoll. And this is what he says about this as he reminds us that that God, when He finished His creation, rested on the seventh day. This is what Swindoll says. He rested. Take special note of that. It wasn't that there was nothing else He could have done. It certainly wasn't because He was exhausted. Omnipotence never gets tired. He hadn't run out of ideas, for omniscience knows no mental limitations. He could have easily made more worlds, created an infinite number of other forms of life and provided multiple millions of galaxies beyond what he did. But he didn't. He stopped. He spent an entire day resting. In fact, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, something he did not do on the other six days. He marked the one day off as extremely special. It was like no other. Sounds to me like he made the day on which he rested a priority period of time. If we intend to imitate God, we too will need to make rest a priority. End of quote. Now you don't have to start your day of rest right now and just take a little nap. But you need to understand that man is a complex being. He's 
com a complex uh, conglomerate of mind and will and emotion and, and spirit. And if one of these aspects of his personhood gets out of sync, it affects every aspect of his personhood. So when one is physically spent, he is emotionally and spiritually drained also. God helps us above the line, secondly, because He deals with the individual. Not only you noticed it or not, but twice in the text I read, God came to Elijah and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if we could picture God as a man, and that's the only way I, we, our conception of Him allows, I want you to just imagine that God found Elijah over there in the backside of the desert under that tree, and God must have just sat down and leaned his back against that tree and said, Elijah, what's your problem? And he came to the place where Elijah was, and he called his name, and he gave Elijah an opportunity to talk about it. And along came his son, Jesus, who was the perfect manifestation of the Father, and he was a master psychologist. If you don't believe that, you turn to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and you sit with him a while at the well in Sychar, and you listen to him as he gave an opportunity for that woman just to talk about things she had never told anyone else. He gave an opportunity to get it off his chest. 21st chapter of Genesis, there's that marvelous moving account of Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Sarah. And, and because Sarah could have no children, she suggested that, that Abraham take Hagar and bear a son, and, and he did. His name was Ishmael, and everything was all right until Sarah in later life was able to give birth and she gave birth to a son, and then immediately she was jealous of Hagar and Ishmael, and she told Abraham, there's not enough room in this tent for both of us. And so he sent her away, and get the picture in the 21st chapter, there goes Hagar out into Beersheba, same wilderness, and she too sat down under a bush, maybe the same one, and she felt abused and misused, and she sat down to sob, and God came to her and said, Hagar, he called her by name, Hagar. Oh, I like this, he said. What's troubling you? What's the matter? It just may be in the deep of depression, in the dark of depression, you just need to talk about it. And so God comes to us at the point of our need and he says, all right now, let's just talk a minute. Let's just get it off our chest. Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joy has departed? Tell it to Jesus alone. And if you can't really pray and sometimes in depression a person has a hard time talking to God, it might be that you just need to talk to somebody, not everybody or you'll be a public nuisance, and they'll dodge you. And not just anybody, but somebody who feels for you and who cares for you and who will listen to you. 
I used to think when I began to counsel as a pastor that what people wanted was advice. And so while they were talking, I was thinking, what can I say? You know, what kind of advice can I give? And I, I've come to the conclusion in these last years of my ministry that what people want is not advice. They just want somebody to listen. There was a song that became popular in World War II. It was kind of one of those pub songs, you know, that people sang and drank together, sang as they drank together about. And the song was, pack up your troubles in an old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. And the guy who wrote that was saying, in essence, deny your feelings, deny your fears, deny your anxiety, paste this smile on your face and get on with it. And the man wrote the words of that song, left them on the piano in a bar, went upstairs and shot himself to death. Because you can't pack up your troubles somewhere and shove them back in the subconscious and think they're going to go away. You've got to ventilate them sometime. You've got to get them up and out. Maybe God just comes to you and says, let's just talk about it. Let's just get it out. Let's just get it off our chest. Third, God helps us in our depression by helping us link our minds up to the greatness and the power of God. Now, I want you to notice what happened in this text. God said, come here, Elijah, I want to do something. Come here, I want to show you something. He got him out there and he said, now you stand right here and don't you move. You stay right there. And he put him there by this cave. And then the Bible says that all of a sudden God began to pass by. And there was this wild wind like a tornado and the mountains began to weave like a reed in the wind and great boulders cleaved asunder. And then the scripture says there was an earthquake and the foundations of the earth began to shake as though they were being moved and the mountains toppled. And then the scripture says there was a fire that turned the valley into a smelting furnace and then God began to whisper. And when it happened, Elijah took the mantle over his face because he knew he was standing in the presence of God. No, he knew he was standing in the presence of the mighty God. And God, began, God seems to be saying to him, Elijah, have you forgotten my power and greatness? He had. Seems awful strange for it had just been hours before when God reached down and sucked up an altar that was, that was covered with water and routed the prophets of Baal. But we're so forgetful, we're so quick to forget the might and the power of God. He has to keep on reminding us, don't he? It just may be that your depression is because you've forgotten God's greatness. And so God was saying to Elijah, I want to you to remember, my man, that I could blow down mountains with my breath and with a thump of my finger I can topple barriers and with the friction that's caused by the snap of my fingers I can turn this world into a smelting furnace. It just may mean that may be that you need to link your mind up this morning to the power of God. It may be that you need to take a new look at the magnificence of God that's manifested in the world around us. To see the planets and the comets and the sun sitting in its tabernacle and understand that these great world systems, each one of them infinite by any measurement, 
spinning through space at enormous and exact rates of speed. Each one for ages has kept its own meticulous orbit without a traffic cop and without a stop and go light and without a collision. It may mean that you need to go out tonight and look into the starry heavens and see those magnificent diamonds, as one has called them, against the backdrop of God's darkness. And someone said stars are just dewdrops on the lawn, on the lawn in the front of the Father's house. And the sun is just a, just a porch light on the house not made with hands. And John Quincy Adams said, to go out and study the stars at night is like leading a man blindfolded up to the very council chambers of God and then stripping off the bandages and asking him to look without astonishment at the throne of God. And the Milky Way is so vast, it takes light a hundred million years to travel from one end of it to the other. And if you took the sun and, it was, and hollowed it out, it would, it would contain a million four hundred thousand worlds the size of ours. And yet Isaiah said, in comparison to this whole universe, it's like the distance between the thumb and the little finger of God's hand. Or it may just mean that you need to stand today and see the greatness and the power of God displayed at Calvary and listen to J James Stewart when he says, God said more in the whisperings of Calvary than he did in the thunderings of Sinai. God said more when he gave his life than when he gave his law. You need to link up your mind this morning to the greatness of God. Fourth, I don't know how many points there are to this sermon, but I'm just going to go to you quit or I quit. Will you just hang in there? Uh, fourth, I think sometimes that God helps us in our depression by helping us to deal with our resentment. As a matter of fact, Freud says that all depression is anger turned inward. And I don't know if you felt it or not, but when I read verse 10, I felt anger. I felt resentment pouring out of the pores of that passage. And Elijah said this when God asked him, what are you doing here? Elijah said, well, I'm here because all the people of God have forsaken God and they've broken his covenant and they bow their knees to Baal. And you can just feel the resentment in that and the anger. And I sense some resentment here toward God. I hear Elijah kind of whining and saying, hey, look what, what, I, what it's gotten me to serve God. Look what it's gotten me to pray and to preach. It's gotten me a, 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 a bush on the backside of Beersheba. There's some resentment there. If you're going to ever be healed of depression, you're going to have to deal with the emotional diseases of resentment and bitterness and anger. I read about a man whose wife, young and attractive, was uh, killed in an automobile accident. The driver of the other car was a drunk. He was, uh, he was drunk when it happened. And after the initial shock of that experience, that man became exceedingly bitter and not without reason. And from then on, every time he referred to the driver of the other call, car, he didn't refer to him as a driver or a man. He referred to him as a murderer and not without justification. But he began to be immersed in that resentment and that bitterness. And it wasn't long until his children couldn't live in the home anymore and they realized they not only lost their mother, but they lost their father as well. 
And when resentment goes unchecked, it becomes hatred. And when you hate somebody, you're a murderer. And you say, wait a minute, I don't don't agree with that. If you don't, you better listen as Jesus spells it out again. He said, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And if you allow that hatred to go unchecked, and you mix it with your hurt, you become as bad as the person you resent and you feel has offended you. And you can remember going to the movie to see Ben-Hur. I imagine most of us did. That story is about a man, Judah Ben-Hur, who came back to Israel for one reason. He came back to get revenge. Because of one man, Masala, the sweet blossom of his youth was lost in the galley of a ship and his fortune decimated. Because of that one man, Misala, his, his mother and his sister rotted like lepers in a cave outside Jerusalem. He had every reason to hate him. So he came back to, to Israel to avenge them and to get revenge on Masala. And he was obsessed by it, so obsessed that one day his sweetheart, Rachel, looked into his troubled eyes and said, Judah ben her, you have become a Masala. Ask God to help you root out the resentment that might be in your heart. Ask Him to root out the bitterness that might be there. And the cure of anger and resentment and hatred, as God deals with it, is always love. There are two other things I'd like to mention, please. God helps us with our depression by giving us something important to do. And if you'll begin reading in verse 15, you follow right on, you read right on, and you'll find that God came to Elijah and said, Elijah, I got a job for you, fella. I got a job, I got a task for you to do. I got some work left for you. You know, it's amazing how God believes in us when we don't even believe in ourselves. And there's no medicine like the medicine of having some divine task appointed by God, something important to do. Something that has some significance about it. There's nothing that is as healing and helpful as that when we get up and we do it in love. As a matter of fact, I'm absolutely convinced that when you go through depression, you are equipped to minister as you have never been prepared to minister before. And I want to share something that I say from this pulpit often, and I firmly believe it, that you are the best witness when you are making available to the woundedness of others what you have discovered as you've gone through your own woundedness. When are you the best witness? When you've learned the EE outline and all those things, that's magnificent and marvelous. But you're the best witness when you make available to the woundedness of others what you have discovered as you have struggled in your own woundedness. That's when you're a witness. And Henry Nguyen's book called The Wounded Healer talks about it. And he reminds us of that legend in the Talmud about the day that Joshua ben Levi came to Elijah and said, when's the Messiah coming? And Elijah said, well, go ask him for yourself. <laughs> he's, and, and Joshua ben Levi said, you mean he's here? Where is he? He said, he's sitting at the city gate. 
He's sitting at the city gate. Well, how will I know him? And Elijah said, you'll find him sitting among the poor, covered with wounds. And all the others unbind their wounds all at the same time. But the Messiah unbinds one wound and then he binds it back again because he says, somebody might need, need me, somebody might call for me, and I must not delay for a moment. And the object of that legend, that parable is this. There are two things that prepare one for, for ministry and service. One is when he deals with his own woundedness. And secondly, when he makes available to the woundedness of others what he has discovered in his. I suppose that I've counseled well, I'd like to, you know, be ministerially in, uh, ministerial and, and say hundreds, <laughs> but it probably realistically not so. But I don't know of anybody that I've ever counseled with and helped in the experience of depression that have not been equipped to minister as never before. God has something to teach you that will enable you to use for His glory. One last thing. God helps us with our depression by giving us somebody to share our life with. And if you want to read a little further in the experience of Elijah, Elijah he, he gave him a friend. He, he sent Elisha. Now, now get this picture. Here's this man, Elijah, calling down fire on Carmel, getting in flight to spare his life, in the dumps of depression, asking God to take his life. And God now comes to say, now I'm going to help you. I'm not going to leave you in the sloth of despond. And this is how we're going to get out of it. Then he says, I'm going to send you somebody who will be your friend. And Elijah was never alone again. Read anywhere and you'll not find any place where Elijah was alone anymore. Sent a friend. He sent somebody to share his life with. That's the way God helps our depression. You see, God has not made us to be islands alone. He has made us for each other. And loneliness and depression is to some degree, I think, related to the fear of love and so if you want to get out of that depression, you look for that person God will place into your life where you can have intimacy and, and you can relate to another. Reach out in those expressions of reaching out of love and find that person you'll spend your life with. It might be your husband or your wife or some friend. Dostoevsky great German novelist was languishing away in prison. He would have been executed if it had not been for an intervention of the czar. And he said, every night a little secret trap in my cage, my cell door. He said, you couldn't even see it. But that little trap, that little slot would open. And from the other side, someone would say, take heart, brother, we suffer too. And he said, in the darkness and the despair of that cell, God sent this unknown, faceless 
voice to say to me every day, you can make it. And he said, I did. Now, God might not send you a friend whose name you can name, but he's already sent you one whose name you know. He sent you one to live his life within you and with you. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is what friends are about, says the scripture, that a man would lay down his life. His name is Jesus. Two men were riding across the country on a train. One of them was working a crossword puzzle. He came to a word he couldn't figure out. He said, hey, can you tell me what fits here? He said, it's, it's a three-letter word for man's best friend. And the guy said, well, that's, that's easy. He said, man's best friend is a dog, D-O-G. He said, well, I thought that was true. But he said, it's the, the first letter is G and the last letter is D. And the guy thought of me and said, oh, I know. Man's best friend is God. And so I used to sing it with these kids. My best friend is Jesus. I'll close with this. I was asking somebody this week as I talked with him, I said, do you really feel a friendship with Christ? Do you really feel an intimacy with Christ? This young man, a brand new Christian, said, there are times when I talk to him. There are times when I feel just like he's my friend. Would you pray with me? Father, there's not a single one of us that cannot relate to the experience of Elijah. We burn ourselves out trying to perform and please. We have some resentment. We've forgotten how great you are because we've focused upon how little we are. Oh, Father, I pray that in this very moment, in this very room, you'll draw near to us in the person of Christ. Tell us, Father, that you love us again. Send us a friend, one whose hand we can hold, whose shoulder we can lean on, whose strength we can depend on. I pray for this in the name of Christ. Now we have three invitations this morning, as every morning. Listen carefully. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Do you know how to be saved from sin? How to go to heaven? This is the way. To repent means to turn around the life you've lived where you are in control and by faith you look to Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. The scripture says, but as many as received him, 
To them He gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So you pray, you say, Jesus, I accept you, I receive you as my Savior. And I trust you, I believe on you, you alone, to save me. Oh, what a wonderful time it is to, to come to Christ and to be saved and have your sin forgiven. Would you come to Him this morning? We're going to pray that you'll come. We're praying that you'll come and receive Christ. Doesn't matter if you're a member of a church or you've been baptized. Have you ever invited Jesus into your life? Have you ever, in response to His grace, committed yourself to Him? Second invitation is for you to come and place your life in the church. I think you sense and know that we're trying to follow God's leadership and we're doing some challenging things living in the faith dimension as best we can. Come and be a part of it. God would bring you here. Place your life here we trust. Or maybe you need to come this morning to say, I, you spoke to my heart today. I want to come out of the darkness into the light. I want to begin to walk with God and have the friendship and the intimacy with Christ. We're going to do it right quick. The best time to come is on the first word. We'll stand. You're coming. I know you are. Let's do it right now.